Well, good morning. That was a, a little bit of a, it feels like an hour earlier, good morning back, but I'm so impressed that you're here. And if you would have asked me how many people would show up to our nine o'clock service on a weekend when 60 women from Glenkirk are away at retreat and we spring ahead for daylight savings time, I am impressed. So welcome. Glad that you're here. And as, Amen. And for those of you watching online and any out on the patio, we're glad that you're joining with us and worshiping with us as well. I talked to my wife, Cindy, yesterday, who's up at Forest Home, and and she said things are going great, and she's having a great time. You know, when I was in seminary, my uh, home church hired me to be an intern. And so there were three of us who were interns on staff at that church at that time. And all three of us were idealistic young 20-something-year-olds who were filled with enthusiasm and real ideas, or new ideas. And because we were only on staff part-time, we were only invited to the weekly pastor's staff meeting once a month. So we decided we were going to have our own covert intern meetings. And in those meetings, we dreamed together of what we would do differently if we were in charge instead of the elders and the pastors at that church. And as you might imagine, we had a lot of really strong opinions about what the church ought to be doing. Well, years later, I became the lead pastor of that very church, and one of the other interns became an elder at that church, and we realized that leading a church is a lot more complicated than we thought it was back when we were interns. You know, that covert intern meeting that we had reveals something about human nature. As humans, we spend a lot of time thinking about what we would do differently if we had more. More influence, more opportunity, more resources. And we all do this as part of the human condition. But sometimes I think we spend more time imagining what we would do differently if we have more than we spend thinking about how to best use what we actually do have. Everyone has their own unique circle of influence in life. Your circle of influence is your range of what you are responsible for in your life. It includes your family, it includes your resources, your money, your intellect, your abilities, your opportunities, your spiritual gifts. Your circle of influence and my circle of influence is our ability to make meaningful decisions, the range of those decisions, and the range to choose meaningful action in our lives. Not everyone has the same size circle of influence. Some people's circle is really big, like a tech billionaire in the Silicon Valley or a U.S. senator. Some people have a lot of resources, a lot of influence, a lot of opportunities. Other people have a very small circle, like someone born into poverty in Haiti. Ukrainian refugees leaving everything behind and fleeing to Poland. Or I think of my friend Mike, who I met in college, who has been a paraplegic since he was 13 years old because of a dirt bike accident. 
Not everyone has the same size circle of influence, and everybody's circle is unique to their circumstances. Last Sunday, we started our series in Lent based on the life of Joseph from the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. We're calling this series What God Intends for Good, and this series will lead us up to Palm Sunday in the beginning of Holy Week. And the overarching theme of Joseph's story is God's providence, God's loving care for and preservation of the world and of your life to fulfill his good purposes. The story of Joseph invites us to trust God's providence in our world and in our lives. But trusting in God's providence does not erase our capacity to act, to make choices within our circle of influence, to make meaningful decisions. And that's what we're going to talk about today. When we met Joseph in Genesis chapter 37 last week, Joseph's circle of influence looked something like this. He had a large circle because he was the privileged and favored son in a large family, the family of Jacob. Joseph's father, Jacob, treated Joseph with favoritism at the expense of Joseph's older brothers. Jacob even gave Joseph a special robe that set him apart from everybody else in the family. Joseph was what we might call a big fish in a small pond of Jacob's family. And fueled by their jealousy and their hatred, Joseph's ten older brothers conspired together and sold Joseph as a slave. And that's where we pick up the story today in Genesis chapters 39 and 40. And we're going to discover today three takeaways about our own circle of influence, whether it's big or small or somewhere in between from Joseph's story. So if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's Word today from Genesis chapter 39, verses 1 through 6a. This is the Word of God for us today. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought Joseph from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master, Potiphar, saw that the Lord was with Joseph, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to Joseph's care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household, and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. You can be seated. 
The theme of Genesis chapter 39 is found in this phrase, the Lord was with Joseph. In fact, if you read the whole chapter, we just read the first six verses, if you read the whole chapter, this phrase is repeated four different times. Twice in the verses, in verses 2 and 3 that I just read, and it occurs twice again at the end of the chapter, once in verse 21 and again in verse 23. God's presence was with Joseph, even though his circle of influence was significantly smaller in Egypt than it had been when he was with his family in Genesis 37. Now, let's talk a little bit about Egypt back then. Um, in the Middle Bronze Age, which is when the events of Genesis took place, Egypt was the largest and most powerful nation around. Situated along Africa's Nile River Delta, Egypt had a sustainable food source that led to a strong and healthy economy, a strong military, and social stability. The king of Egypt was called the Pharaoh. That's a title for the king of Egypt. And he lived in Memphis, not Tennessee, but Memphis in Egypt. And the events we read about here in Genesis took place during Egypt's 12th dynasty. A time when the Egyptians were expanding their borders, creating art, discovering new technologies, and building pyramids with slave labor. Joseph is now a very small fish in a very large ocean. No longer the privileged son. Joseph is now one of thousands of foreign slaves in Egypt. Yet the text says that God was with him. A wealthy and powerful Egyptian official named Potiphar buys Joseph from the Ishmaelites at the slave market, as we read. And Potiphar soon realizes that everything he puts Joseph in charge of prospers. God was with Joseph. But in between these four statements in chapter 39 of God being with Joseph, two at the beginning of the chapter, two at the end of the chapter, there's a crisis. And I didn't read it, but let me just summarize it. Joseph is assaulted by Potiphar's wife and then wrongfully imprisoned. And I'm calling Joseph's experience here an assault because that's really, if you read the text, how it describes it. Remember, Joseph was a slave with no legal rights, no voice, no recourse. Potiphar's wife has all the power in the household. And the text does not say that she developed feelings for Joseph or that she fell in love with him. Instead, if you keep reading in verse 7, she simply orders Joseph, come to bed with me. It wasn't a request. It was probably in the same tone of voice she would have told him to take out the trash or to make dinner. The sexual exploitation of slaves is a common practice in every slave economy. Potiphar's wife had probably done this with other slaves before. When someone is viewed as a slave, they're no longer viewed as a person. They're viewed as a body to be used. Joseph pleads with Potiphar's wife to leave him alone, that if he obeys her command, 
he will be breaking trust with her husband, with Potiphar, and he will be sinning against God. And Joseph knows that this will compromise his integrity. But she's relentless. And as many victims of harassment and assault can probably relate to, Joseph finds himself trying to find ways to avoid being in the same room with her, to avoid being alone with her, trying to change the subject in conversations, trying to find a way out, all to no avail, until she finally physically grabs him as he's trying to leave the room. And as he runs away, she holds on to his cloak. And then, as often happens in cases of harassment and assault, she, the perpetrator, blames the whole thing on him, the victim. She accuses him of trying to assault her. And because Joseph is a nameless foreign slave, and because she is a powerful Egyptian, no one believes him, and everyone believes her. And so Joseph is incarcerated, thrown into prison, And when Joseph is incarcerated, his circle of influence gets even smaller. Because now, in a prison cell, he's not just a foreign slave, he's an imprisoned foreign slave. His capacity for action is restricted to that prison cell. And everything in chapter 4 of, or chapter 40 of Genesis, takes place in that prison cell. At some point, as the picture on the screen illustrates, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and baker are also thrown into the same cell. And as God's providence would have it, these two men find themselves sharing a prison cell with a young 20-something Hebrew slave named Joseph. Both the cupbearer and the baker have dreams that trouble them. And back then, dreams were believed to be premonitions about the future, as we saw in chapter 37 last week with Joseph's two dreams. But unlike the Hebrews, the Egyptians believed that dreams could only be understood if you hired a professional dream interpreter to interpret the dream for you. And in this prison, there are no professional dream interpreters But Joseph says in chapter 40, verse 8, don't interpretations of dreams belong to God? Tell me your dreams. And Joseph interprets the cupbearer's dream. His interpretation is good news for the cupbearer. He tells him within three days, the Pharaoh will restore you to your role as his cupbearer. But then Joseph pleads with the cupbearer. And let me just read verses 14 and 15 of chapter 40. Joseph says, When all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. Can you sense Joseph's desperation in these words? He's been the victim of injustice. He's been betrayed by his brothers, enslaved, harassed, assaulted, falsely accused, and wrongfully imprisoned. Then Joseph interprets the baker's dream. And it's not good news for the baker. 
He tells the baker that in three years, the baker will be executed by the Pharaoh. And it all goes down exactly how Joseph says it will. His interpretations of these two dreams are spot on. But then chapter 40 ends with this statement in verse 23 of chapter 40. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. Let's consider some takeaways about our own circle of influence from these two chapters. First, our circle of influence, like Joseph's, varies with our circumstances. Our circle varies with our circumstances. Many people's circle of influence in life is determined by factors well beyond their control. A person born into a country plagued by poverty will have a very different looking circle of influence than someone who is born into a culture that is economically prosperous. A little girl born into a patriarchal society that doesn't allow girls to go to school and to learn to read will have a very different circle than someone, a little girl who's born into a society that values equality. Being born able-bodied will lead to a very different circle of influence than being born with a disability or an illness. Other people's actions can contribute to the size of our circle of influence. People can give us opportunities and resources that cause our circle to grow larger. But people can also inflict harm on us that cause our circle to get even smaller. Like Joseph being enslaved, being a victim of harassment and assault, being treated unfairly because of your race or your sex or your appearance. These can cause our circle to get smaller. And sometimes our own actions can contribute to the size of our circle of influence. Going to college or working hard in a job can cause sometimes our circle to get larger. Though, of course, being born into a place where we could go to college or being born able-bodied and able to do work is beyond our control. We can also make our circle grow smaller by making bad decisions, betraying people, committing a crime, breaking trust. And as we get older, our circle often gets smaller as our health declines and limits our capacity for meaningful action. So our circle of influence in life varies with our circumstances, and everyone's circumstances are different, which should make us very cautious about judging people based on the size of their circle of influence. Here's a second takeaway from this part of Joseph's story. God is with us, regardless of the size of our circle. God is present with us. Joseph's story reminds us that there is no correlation between the size of our circle of influence in life and how much God's presence is with us. When we've trusted our lives to God, God is present no matter how large or how small our circle might be at any given time. Now, there is a theology out there that's sometimes called prosperity theology that would disagree with me on this topic. 
Prosperity theology would say that the size of your circle reveals how much God is with you. If you have a large circle of influence, God is with you more. And God is with you less if you have a small circle. If you have a large circle of influence, you're doing something right. If your circle of influence is small, then you're doing something wrong. Joseph would not have made a very good prosperity theologian. Because we only read that God was with Joseph when his circle of influence got smaller in chapter 39. God is with you today. No matter what your circumstances, if you've placed your trust in Him, God is not with you any less if your circle is smaller than it once was. If you're unemployed or if your adult children aren't talking to you, if you're having health issues, this does not affect whether God's presence is with you in your life today or not. Your unpaid bills, your your dead-end job, these do not disappoint God. And God is not with you anymore if your circle of influence is large. If you got a big promotion, if you got to marry the love of your life, if the cancer goes into remission, this doesn't mean that God is with you more than He's with other people. Your wealth, your possessions, your influence, your title, these do not impress God. You know, one of Jesus' names in the Bible is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Through Jesus, the holy, righteous, sovereign, unknowable God is personally and intimately present with us through Jesus. And when we trust in Jesus, God is with us, no matter how large or how small our circle of influence might be. Finally, God calls us to live with integrity within our circle of influence. He calls us to live with integrity. As Joseph's circle of influence shrunk, his integrity grew. The Joseph we read about in chapters 39 and 40 is a far more mature Joseph than the privileged, immature Joseph we encountered back in chapter 37. And when we think about Joseph's integrity... It's tempting for us to only focus on the incident with Potiphar's wife. And indeed, Joseph shows amazing integrity in that situation, a great cost to himself. But I can't help but wonder if Joseph's integrity is even more evident in his refusal to give in to despair. Because the events of chapters 39 and 40 lasted over a decade. Think about that. That's a really long time. I would imagine that there are many times over that time that Joseph felt like giving up. What does integrity look like within your circle of influence today? I think Joseph's story gives us some indicators. It's not an exhaustive list, but here's a couple of things. For for Joseph, integrity meant resisting temptation. Joseph couldn't stop the harassment or the assault as much as he tried, but he chose integrity. 
in that situation. And, and let's not be so naive as to think that Joseph never sinned. Joseph was not Jesus. Joseph was just as sinful as you or I are, even if his sins are not recorded for us in the Bible. And we're probably grateful our sins aren't recorded in the Bible either for other people to read. Joseph would have had struggles and regrets in life. He made mistakes. He made decisions in life that went contrary to God's ways. Integrity is not perfection. But Joseph sought to resist temptation is what the author of Genesis highlights here. For Joseph, integrity also never meant never losing sight of who he was as a member of God's family. Egypt tried to strip away Joseph's identity, first by making him a nameless, faceless slave. And then, as we'll see next week, by bestowing upon him an Egyptian identity, giving him an Egyptian name. But Joseph never forgets who he is, that he is the son of Jacob, the grandson of Isaac, the great-grandson of Abraham, that Joseph is a member of the family of God, a recipient of God's covenant promises to this family, a bearer of God's plan of salvation to bring the blessing of salvation to all the other nations and peoples of the world. He never loses sight of who he is. And if you're a follower of Jesus, integrity means never losing sight of who you are as a member of God's family. And then finally, for, for Joseph, integrity meant using what he had for the good of other people. Using what he had for the other good of others. Even though his circle was small, he used what little he had within his circle to bring blessing to others. He did this as a slave in Potiphar's household. He did it in the prison by interpreting the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. Joseph used what he had, even though it was small, to help and bring God's blessings to others. Integrity means using what we have within our circle, whether it's a small circle or a big circle, to bring God's blessings, to bring good to other people. Using your gifts, using your resources, using your money, using your influence, using what you have to bring good to people. That's integrity. All of us like to imagine what we do if our circle was bigger. My covert intern meeting in my 20s reveals that. What we do if we had more money, greater influence, a bigger house, a different family, a better job. The story of Joseph reminds us that God is with us, no matter the size of our circle, and that God calls us to integrity within that circle. Your circle may change as you go through life. It may get bigger. You may get opportunity to make your circle bigger. And if you do and have an opportunity to do that in a way that doesn't compromise your integrity, go for it. But your circle may also get smaller. And on this second Sunday in the season of Lent, I want to remind us of God's providence 
that God is lovingly guiding and preserving your life and my life and all creation towards the fulfillment of his good purposes. I want to remind us that God is with us in our circle that his love and his presence are not affected by how large or how small your circle of influence might be today. And I want to challenge you today to focus less on what you don't have in your circle and to learn to live with integrity within your circle, knowing that Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus himself is with you right there. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these incidents from Joseph's life. And we're reminded, Lord, that this story isn't so much about Joseph as much as it's about you and of your faithfulness to your promises, of your calling to your people. And Father, we sit in this sanctuary today, each one of us with a different circle of influence, with different resources, abilities, and gifts, different responsibilities, God. Lord, help us learn to live with integrity within what you've given us, that we might be faithful to use all that you've given us to further your purposes. And God, we trust that you are governing your creation. We trust in your providence today. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.